Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Ella Washington. She joins me to speak about her time fostering a child, a very disturbed child, who identified into the trans identity for a couple years and then identified out of it. A lot of different competing conditions within this young man. Ella gives a very deep, heavy account of walking somebody through not just the trans identity, but through teenage life. I think this is a very valuable conversation, a bit of a slow burn, admittedly. Uh, It was a two and a half hour conversation, and I cut it down to one hour and about 15 minutes. So if you are watching it, you might notice more cuts than usual. If you are just listening, I hope you don't notice anything at all. So without further ado, here is Ella Washington. How long you been in that area or in, in Oregon? Well, um, in this area since about 2010. Okay. Actually, um, it's it's all part of the story. It's all wrapped up together. It's. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, what what's the thesis then? Um, well, the thesis I would say is that um, parents of kids who begin identifying as transgender, you know, seemingly with the ROGD, rapid onset gender dysphoria type, um, we're not transphobes. And, you know, we're not, we don't hate our kids, we don't reject our kids. And a lot of the things that, that people say are happening, or excuse me, that they say are not happening in terms of like instant medicalization or, um, you know, hug box type affirmations, those are happening. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, and so I wanted to share my experience with this kid, you know, um, because it's funny, um, he's one of five. And if his next younger brother, had been the one to say that he was transgender identified, I probably would have went along. <laughs> um, just because of who his younger brother is versus who he is. Okay. A more effeminate. Uh... Yeah. I mean, when he was a little kid and I was trying to give him swimming lessons, his hair was getting in his eyes. And so I gave him a haircut and he started to cry and just, I want beautiful hair like mom's. And this was a kid that fought over jewelry with his sister. And this was a kid who, you know, when I was packing his night, you know, to go bags, I found makeup in his go bags. He wasn't the one that ended up IDing as trans. Okay. And when did your, when did the young man in question? Uh, could we give him a signifier just so it's easy to, uh, sure. Um, so I will use his trans ID name, which he doesn't use anymore and which is not related to any of his, um, birth names or anything like that. So he called himself Sandy. Okay. And, um, how old was Sandy when you became aware of his identification? Sure. Uh, Sandy was about six months after he turned 13. Okay. 
And what year is this? Um, would have been 2013. Oh, okay. All right. So this is before things got really out in the open with right. the trans uh, yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, but when I met the kids, Sandy was six going on seven. Um, and when I met the kids, um, it was sort of a fling with their dad. <laughs> Wasn't intending to stick around, but... Um, did end up doing so because their dad had a huge psychotic break. Um, he has bipolar disorder, schizoaffective disorder. And um, when he was finally picked up for his social security um, approval, he's, he's on full disability for it. He's very ill. Okay. Um, he went off of his medication and started spending like mad. So he had a big episode and I ended up sticking around. Okay. And became a stepmommy to these kids. All five or? To all five of the kids. Now, okay. um, because of his illness, um, their mom had moved all of the kids about 150 miles south of where we were. We were in Olympia, oh. where I was going to school, and his five kids and his ex-wife were 150 miles south in Portland. Yeah. Sort of protect them, protect her. I didn't know it. <laughs> um, but the first time I got to know the kids was after, um, I don't know, three or four months of us dating. And he was already starting to be a little weird, but his ex-wife dropped the kids off for a week in the summer and they stayed with us. Um, and I got to know this little boy because he was all up in my business. He was nonstop running around the house, could not be like couldn't be satisfied with any activity, no game, no coloring book, no nothing, just running around being up in everybody's business, climbing all over every, everything, hitting people, like starting fights randomly. Like none of the neighborhood kids wanted to be with him because he was so aggressive and hmm. just um, up in everyone's face. <laughs> okay. um, he was constantly beating up his youngest brother, the one who I mentioned was sort of effeminate. That kid was always having bloody noses because of how his brother would beat him up. Um, they tormented the cat. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Where, where is he in the birth order? He is um, the second youngest of these okay. five. Okay. Hmm. So these kids were dropped off with us for a week. And on the last day, you know, everybody's sick of everybody. Because we're in a one-bedroom apartment, by the way, with five kids. Okay. <laughs> Trial by fire. Yeah. Yeah. About an hour after the appointed time, the kids come and say, hey, has mom forgotten about us? I'm like, well, I haven't heard from her. I'm sorry. I, I assume she's on her way. About another hour goes by, and we get a call from her. And she says, I'm going to stay another week in Las Vegas. So 
the kids stay with us for another week. Hmm. And this kind of was my first indication of the type of neglectful parenting that these kids were subject to. The first time I got them into a bath, I was shocked that I could not see the bottom of the bathtub after they're like, they left such dirty bath water individually. Mm-hmm. Do you kids never ever bathe? Sandy had really close cropped hair, probably, you know, about my length here. Um, and it was patchy, like there was hair falling out in little bits. His mom said when she dropped him off, oh, you know, it's eczema and I don't have his medication. It was in a purse that got stolen. Whatever. After two weeks of having the kids and making sure they were bathed regularly, I could see the hair was starting to come back in. It was just like scalp fungus. Yeah. So they were severely neglected kids. Every time these kids were picked up, I would sob for about an hour, knowing that they were going back to the place where, you know, nobody was watching to make sure that they didn't get beat up by their elders or making sure that they, you know, had a bath time. I learned that it was customary for them just to like, when they were tired, just to crawl up asleep. Like they didn't have a bedtime. They would just go off to bed whenever they felt like it. Okay. Um, their mom, I learned, was alcoholic. And their dad, (laughs) severely mentally ill. And it felt like, you know, I, I had chosen when I was a teenager never to have a kid, but to foster one eventually. I figured that would be my path. And then when these kids landed in my lap and they were feral and needed a grounded adult i figured here i go and i did like their dad i loved him i did love him you know when he wasn't ill and when he wasn't abusing alcohol and and when he was taking care of himself he was a good dad and good partner and lots of fun but those times just got fewer and fewer. Yeah. Um, as I learned um, during his first illness, I went to a um, class that's a 12 week class. You spend 12 Saturdays, full days um, with the National Alliance for Mental Illness. It's called Family to Family, and they teach you everything about serious mental illness and it's for partners siblings parents grandparents whatever of people with schizophrenia bipolar disorder etc and yeah they go from you know like what causes the illness to what medications do and and somewhat how we think they work um to you know, how often you can expect an episode to happen to um, what you can do for lifestyle changes to help your loved one, um, how to set good boundaries with someone who has mental illness, um, you know, just 
what symptoms look like, you know, what a prodrome looks like, what what it looks like where when they're fully in an episode, um, just top to bottom. Mm-hmm. And when I went through this class, I started recognizing this little kid, Sandy, in in so much of this. Okay. And I started talking to their dad's mom, their grandma, who is also in town. And um, she has a pretty good recollection because she kept diaries daily for, you know, like decades. And she actually wrote a book about her son's first foray into mental illness and everything that happened with him. He was a gutter punk in Olympia in the early 90s and was in with the meth crowd, running scams at the downtown Shell station for gas for meth money. And that's actually how he met the kids' mom. Um, Hmm. But, so he had been through it a couple of times before, and so had she. And she told me about what kind of kid he was. And he was exactly the same. As Sandy. As Sandy. Like... He was into petty criminal mischief, like making homemade M80s and blowing them up in the backyard. Oh, jeez. When the backyard abuts a middle school. Oh, no. Breaking and entering into neighbors' houses, you know, just for petty thrills. Not to steal anything, but just to, like, creep around and Hmm. whatever. And Sandy was... A troubled kid too when he was in second grade what about the summer or the year after we were introduced um, this he was told by the school that he could not come back until his mom got him into mental health treatment okay um, but simultaneously to add another variable into this show right kiddo is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Oh. So it came to a point where their dad and I, um, we decided that we would try to move closer to them. And I found, um, I had graduated from college and lost my job in the housing crash. Um, So we figured it was time, you know, let's just move down south. And I found an AmeriCorps position actually down here um, and served in this area, um, developing educational programs for the community center in um, low-income housing. So you are a social worker outside of the house and a social worker inside of the house. You are doing social work. I'm doing social work. Um, My degree at Evergreen was not social work. Um, I was economics Hmm. and and (laughs) pre-law. I I took four quarters of programs of pre-law and four, I would say, of, you know, hardcore economics. That was my jam. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and some business management um, and uh, nonprofit management. Okay. So, 
the the AmeriCorps position was a stepping stone into management for me in my mind. Okay. Yeah. I really like that's who I am. Um, my purpose in the world is, you know, I, I want my life to have been a gift to the future. Hmm. And that's how I was going to do it. Um, and, I, and I say was, and I'll get to that too. <laughs> Anyhow, um, into this AmeriCorps position and doing all of this you know, learning and starting to understand the bigger picture about this kiddo and his family and continuing to talk with their grandma who was in contact with their mom, you know, it's still friendly. We decided that we were going to kidnap the kids. Are you sure you want to say that out loud on to the internet? Um, it wasn't necessarily kidnapping. It's his own kids. Okay. I mean, we were rescuing them because what they were describing was a household with no food in the cupboards. The teachers were talking about the youngest kid hoarding food from the garbage and at school, talking about not coming to school with socks or underwear. You know, the kids would talk about how they played with Sandy's used syringes, you know, that they weren't being disposed of properly. Um, they talked about mom had zombie mode where they could ask her for anything and she would say yes mom was blacked out hmm. so with this kid having such serious behavioral problems and having a serious illness diabetes we decided to rescue him so after a weekend visit, we didn't give the youngest two back. It was going to be the youngest three, um, but the, yeah, the middle one decided not to come with us that weekend. Mm -hmm. So the youngest two it was, and we kept them. Um, we, we are on the other side of the border, by the way. So um, this triggered... This triggered the divorce. They were not actually divorced. Oh, did you just learn about that then or? No. Okay. Well, there we go. You're, at least you were a little prepared, but. I was a little prepared, but this triggered the divorce because they didn't actually have an official parenting plan or. Custody. Custody arrangement, anything. It was basically just de facto custody she had just taken the kids like she had kidnapped the kids originally mm -hmm. um, and took them to Oregon. So um, this triggered this whole thing. And um, during the divorce, we learned that she was pregnant with her boyfriend's kid. So now there's kid number six coming on board. Hmm. And things were still very rocky with Sandy because he had gone through a variety of diagnoses with the professionals, like ranging from ADHD to PTSD to complex PTSD to, you know, uh, ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, um, Tourette's. Um, yeah, one of, one of his 
major things was uncontrollable beatboxing. Like he just couldn't <laughs> like all the time. That's, that's kind of cool. That's kind of a gift. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there were also like random <laughs> that. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Um, so they started to try him on medications and, um, they, they tried him on, like, it was a blood pressure medication that they say was supposed to reduce hyperactivity, but all it made him do was fall asleep in the shower. So I was like, that's not, that's a safety problem. We're not doing that. Um, they put him on Stratera and Stratera, um, which is one of these methamphetamine variations it's like Ritalin but I think it's like a longer acting it's got holes drilled in it um that one made him feel like he was Superman and he was on a play structure and jumped from one structure to another that was like no rational thinking person would and he broke his arm so um that was kind of a wake-up call for everybody. And I was like, you guys, I've been telling you all along. He's like his dad. Give him his dad's medications. So they finally gave him a mood stabilizer. And it was like a light switch. The aggression went away. I mean, he had been, like, attacking teachers, biting them, cutting other kids' hair in classrooms. He, at one point had thrown a temper tantrum and escaped the school and rolled under a school bus. Yeah. He, they brought him back into the school. He stripped naked and head butted a glass display case. Kid was out of freaking control. Wow. They gave him the mood stabilizer and it went, it turned off. It was magic. Hmm. Um, what came out was depression. after the mania was gone. His dad is a rapid cycler. His dad is without medication. He is up at four in the morning, giggling like the Joker, and then at sundown, rocking himself in a fetal position on the bathroom floor, crying about wanting to die. That's, I mean, his dad is really, when he's not medicated, he's bad. And the kid ended up bad too, with depression. Mm -hmm. So they finally agreed to medicate him for that as well. He ended up on the exact same medication regimen as his dad, and it worked. It was great. Um, and that was just slightly, you know, the between 10 and 13, those ages that that happened, and he got much improved. Um, he was finally back in a regular social setting in school for part of the day. Um, he was finally, you know, actually making progress on some of his IEP goals. It was, it was What's great. an IEP goal? An IEP is an individual education plan okay. that a kid on special education um, has adjusted every year. Um, and it's got things like um, will self-soothe self 80% of the time when upset. Will... Um, get teachers' attention appropriately 80% of the time, whatever. Um, and his goals were really, really low until maybe like the seventh grade. Okay. And he, he, when he finally started to get better. 
Um, and at this point, like we had gone through therapists, psychiatrists, medication, you know, we'd gotten labs, like with the addition of the mood stabilizer, he was now getting um, quarterly blood draws to make sure everything was okay with his kidney function. Um, his diabetes control was not great at all. Um, for folks who are familiar with the scale of A1C, um, six is probably ideal and 10 is like danger zone about to die. And he was consistently an eight or nine. Okay. So um, that wasn't really great, but it was getting better as he was more able to control his moods. He was also able to control food cravings and, you know, not lie as much um, because that had been a big problem. Like he was never trusted to tell the truth about anything. You, with this kid, with Sandy, you always had to verify what was going down. Like, ask another kid who was there and watching, because he would always change the story to make himself the hero or to at least absolve himself of error. Mm -hmm. And when he started to get better, though, his mom started to allow him to have internet access unsupervised. Okay. And his interests develop that he discovers he's a brony. Okay. So could you um, elaborate just a bit on that for anybody who's not aware of the brony sensation that has swept the nation? Yeah. So, so he discovers that he is a fan of the new My Little Pony series. Um, and he loves Friendship is Magic. And, you know, I don't know what else to say about it. Like, they're, they're well, little ponies that, that when I was a little girl, they were aimed at me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, that was a reboot. But that particular internet community is actually stocked with men, uh, full-grown men of a variety of ages. And unsupervised time at the internet interacting with a cartoon that's aimed at children, but possessed with men, you don't know who he's starting to contact. You don't know who is starting to communicate with him and right. shape his worldview because right. he's so malleable. And, and in all of this, yeah, the malleability is absolutely a point. I mean, developmental de delay has been a thread throughout his lifetime. Okay. So, um, is he, it, would you say that at this point in time, and I think this is probably 10 or 11, he's pretty verbally precocious, but emotionally underdeveloped? Yes. Okay. Which is a, Absolutely. the worst combination for an internet upbringing. Absolutely. He was very verbally precocious. And I would say, um, you know, he was the one that was picking up words that his dad and I used to bring them back home to his mother's household. And she would be very impressed with his usage of the words. Yeah. Um, the other kids weren't doing so as much as him. Mm -hmm. So I would say yeah, him more than the others even. Um, so, yeah, he discovers bronies. He discovers the furry community. Um. He, for him, it's very innocent and like, you know, they're all plushies, just, you know, people dressing as plushies and they just like to be fun and, you know, 
just do fun things and you know they they skip around town wearing costumes it's all very fun and light and innocent and I knew somewhat about the darker side of the furry community because I had gotten Bizarre Magazine when I was a teen. (laughs) And they reported on that. And so I knew kind of like the more adult um, sexual side of it. But I didn't think there was like a fun, light side that kids should be participating in. But then there was a convention that came to town. And, and it was like one of these anime conventions, except it was like included costumed people. Yeah. And we went to the area near the convention center and there was a big park where all the kids were coming out of the convention and, you know, they were all costumed and fun and being cool and free and whatever. And we're like, okay, go join them, whatever kid, you know, because he'd always had problems making friends of peers. Yeah. And I always wanted to encourage opportunities for him to mix and mingle. And it seemed to fit the bill because they welcomed him in and it was kind of creepy. They all had a circle and they were like, one of us, one of us, one of us. I was like, well, that's what I wanted was him to find some people where he could be one of us. Yeah. But this is kind of a creepy way to do it. Okay, whatever. So I kind of talked to him about it. Um, you know, and one thing I got to emphasize in all of this is that at no point was our relationship ever adversarial, even though he was such a troubled kid, even though, you know, we had to deal with these behavioral problems. I had found a way of dealing with them. I had found the parenting with love and logic system, which is basically like redirection or, you know, sharing control through choices, like every little thing. Do you want strawberry? Do you want orange? Do you want chocolate or vanilla? Like building up the kids, like power, like giving them as much individual power as you possibly can so that when the circumstances arise where you are concerned for their safety or you have other, you know, serious developmental concerns, you can pull the plug and say no. Without them going, you always say no to everything. Mm -hmm. Like it it sort of just holds back your power for the time when you really need it. And another basis of that type of parenting relationship is just, you know, talking it out and and giving space to be wrong. So anyway, you know, we we talked about this and this opened up our dialogue, but um, he hadn't really come out as trans yet. It was maybe a couple months after that that he went to his dad and I and told us that he had already come out to his mom and now stepdad or stepartner or whatever he is, other parental unit, and his teachers and his endocrinologist And that they wanted to start puberty blockers. And that he was now going by a new name. How old is he? 13. Okay. So just almost out of eighth grade. 
when his endocrinologist offered puberty blockers right out of the gate, his dad and I put our foot down and said no. And this was for the very base reason that, number one, his diabetes was not in control. Number two, we didn't know what his behavioral you know, issues were. We were still sorting out the meds. It was still early in his mood stabilizer road there. And we asked her flat out, you know, are there any studies about how a puberty blocker impacts diabetes? If the answer is no, then the answer is no. Why would she? I just don't understand why a professional would rush a treatment without having like a solid basis of why. I don't know. And that's the thing. Like she had known this kid since he was diagnosed at age eight. She had been the consistent physician, you know, seeing him in the beginning every two months and then every three months thereafter. Um, she knew like he was a kid that brought in bionicles to every appointment and was like making gunny shoot sounds and like, you know, <laughs> mm. he, he wasn't feminine in his day to day at all. Um, he refused hygiene. He refused to brush his hair, you know, <laughs> like he wasn't into long nails. He wasn't into anything like that. Um, and why she rushed into treatment, I can only wonder. Um, and I can only wonder because in the end of all of this, after she offered him cross-sex hormones, when he turned 16-ish, he was like on the cusp of 16, she said, well, is it time for estrogen yet? That's when I went home and found the other pediatric endocrinologist in our metro area and, and got him into the pipeline to get away from this person. Wow. And I called the hospital patient ombuds and wrote emails and asked them how, how I need a letter from her saying how this aligns with you know, standards of care for this person. We have all of these confounding variables in their life, trauma, poverty, you know, mental illness, you know, they, they basically tick every single box in, in the adverse childhood experience survey, you know, except for maybe sexual abuse. They tick every single box. How is this treatment ethical? And I want a letter. And the response I received over the phone was, standards of care are not binding. Hmm. So we found another endocrinologist and she agreed that he was never a candidate for either of those treatments and that it never should have been broached. Um, I had tried to get a care team together. Like I tried to get everybody, the psychologist, the psychiatrist, the endocrinologist, the school nurse, you know, I, the mom, the dad, the stepdad, the, the everybody in the room, you know, to talk about this. 
and maybe try to tease out what was going on. And all I heard back was, you know, we don't want to poke and prod at this poor trans kid. So that trans identification within the medical field shut off any avenue of uh, complex, nuanced investigation of all of the the entirety of this human being was collapsed and then uh, neatly boxed away in this trans identity. Absolutely. And I need to reiterate to you that they believed him about nothing else. He wasn't allowed to walk to the store by himself at age 14. He was not believed about whether or not he ate breakfast that morning. But his trans identification, despite all of these other confounding factors, and despite the history of, of who he had been as a young, younger person, the same teacher he had had actually since like fifth grade, she had moved up in grades to be kind of with a cohort of special education students. So she knew him for a long time. And um, immediately upon him coming out, the next day she brought in a whole bag of her used clothes for him. She's a late 20 something petite, you know, somewhat. And he is, you know, at 13 years old, pretty skinny. His dad's a skinny dude, you know, struggles to put on muscle, never keeps fat. Um, and it included, you know, lingerie. And that was weird. And he started wearing that right away. Um, he started going by his new name right away. Me, I was like, you know, I thought we were really close, frankly. You know, um, just, you know, every summer that when he was growing up, he would stay at our house, like basically the entire summer. Mom, you know, would give him up as much as she could. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I thought I knew him pretty well. And I was kind of shocked. So we went, I was like, you know, can we just go talk about this? So we had a nice little heart to heart. I was like, this is pretty shocking, you know, and, and I'll call you your new name and all whatever. But, you know, having known you for this long um, and, and having our history it's really hard for me to call you she, her. It's, it's going to be hard for me to do that. So I'm going to probably slip up. Um, it might be easier if I call you they, because I know how to use, you know, indirect third person pronouns. I'm fine with that. So is that cool with you? And he said, yeah, that's fine. We can do that. Now this history that, I allude to with us is that one of the symptoms of bipolar disorder is hypersexuality. And he had been sexually invasive to me when he was a younger kid. And I try not to remember that when we go about our day-to-day -day relationship. Like that is the very, very back of my brain. 
don't even think about that. I know it was illness expressing itself. I know it was um, not him and not his intent to be like that toward me. Um, but there was a time when he was a young kiddo, like I couldn't take him swimming because he would try to pull my top off mm. or he would try to sneak into the locker room to watch me undress. Um, his dad caught him trying to break into the bathroom when I was showering. So knowing that, it just kind of made me a little uncomfortable to call him she, her. So I settled on they, them, and he seemed okay with it. And that was fine. Um, and he still lived with his mom and her partner. Um, but And so they moved him into his sister's bedroom. He is, like I said, one of five kids. Um, there's There are four boys and one girl. So the sister comes and confides into me. Um, after Sandy has been spending, you know, has been about a month or so in her bedroom, that she's really disturbed by his behavior and it just keeps going on and she's talked to her mom about it and her mom won't do anything and she really doesn't like it. Like, that's not cool. <laughs> we decide as a collective to ask his mom if he can come and live with us, finally. You know, it'd be kind of a break um, between middle school and high school. Like if he wants to start his new identity at a new school, he can do that. Um, it's gonna be, you know, a place where it will take the pressure off of him you know, to live up to his older siblings. Um, he can just sort of, you know, and he can have the two-on-one sort of parental attention that all of his conditions sort of require. Um, and we agreed to this with certain caveats. Um, caveats being if Jay and I broke up again, if their dad and I broke up again for whatever reason, Sandy would stay with me and continue to go to school. Um, and I agreed to this because I personally had been transferred through several high schools and knew the hell of it, you know, knew the administrative hell of doing that. Um, and I wanted him to have stability. I wanted him to have continuity. And um, so we all agreed to that. That was great. He came to live with us. We used his pronouns. He could dress however he wanted. And, you know, and actually I had no problem playing along and the way that I played along was actually to enforce feminine social uh, con um, conventions on him. So, you know, he wanted to wear a sheer shirt out of the house. Like, no, girls don't do that. You, you put on a camisole underneath that. You don't wear that sheer shirt just by itself. Hmm. Or, you know, you need to close your legs when you're wearing that dress. No, a little bit more. No, all the way knees together. <laughs> you can't be climbing that. You can't be climbing that stuff wearing a dress. Um, you know, that sort of stuff. Hmm. And he really didn't like that. 
but that was all the stuff that I had been subject to as a little girl. Like the very first feminine social convention that I had been introduced to was modesty. So if he's going to be feminine, let's be feminine. Hmm. Hmm. There's a lot of people that uh, push against that, but that's, um, that's a huge conversation, but I, I can see how tactically that's a very, um, I don't want to say cunning in a negative sense, but it's a very smart decision. I mean, think about it. Developmentally, the women who wear sheer shirts or whatever, they're at the stage where they're rebelling against the modesty that, that's been ingrained in them their whole lives. They've already, you know, that's a door that they're shutting. They're not just entering into this world of flaunting their assets. Okay. That's not what womanhood is about, right? You know, when they flaunt their assets, it's, Nah, it's supposed to be empowering, whatever. What is it empowering from? Hmm. So, you know, in order for my kid to experience sheer whatever's as more than just a, you know, expression of trying to be sexual in public, you know, if it's going to be really, if it's going to be the feminine meaning of wearing that sheer stuff, then he should have a sense of modesty to rebel against. Okay. Hmm. And I, I got to say, you know, throughout all of this as well, um, another focus of mine has just been, you know, the way out is through. Learning is everything. Reading, reading books, you know, going to classes, you know, trying to integrate this into a systemic view of, you know, a systemic analysis of what's going on in the world and in my life and in my kid's life. Um, so we were reading a lot of books, too, at this time about trans ID teens. I think we read one called Magenta. Um, we read, I read a book by Nora Vincent about she transitioned to live as a man for a year or whatever. So I read in books about um, his bipolar disorder. I read in books about um, you know, the sociology of poverty, what, it, you know, family structures are different, um, oral culture versus written culture is different. You know, just all these different things, trying to give him an understanding. And he really, he really did get it, even though his emotional expression was kind of stunted. His cognitive function, he was like, oh, I see. These are all things that I have been exposed to. Mm -hmm. These are all possibly, you know, these ways that I behave are possibly coping mechanisms for all of these things in my life that have happened. Um, and we, you know, talked about just basic, like, social role observations. You know, like, there are equal number of stalls in the men's bathroom to the women's bathroom at the movie theater. What do men do? They pee and they poop. What do women do? They pee, they poop, they have menstruation, they have leaky boobs, they toilet kids, they sometimes miscarry, they hide from predators, they are equal number stalls equal. Hmm. So, you know, I would ask him things like that. Or, you know, when he'd go back to his mom's house for the holidays, he'd come back and talk about events going on in the holidays. And I'd ask him, you know, just observe, like, think back in your mind. 
on Thanksgiving Day. Where are your, where are the dudes? They're in the living room watching football or they're back in brother's room land gaming. Where are the girls? They're all in the kitchen. Where are you? I'm land gaming. But anyway, I mean, sophomore year was a big growth year. And this was um, when I did a lot more of the probing, you know, why and what and how and, you know, when it came to his ideas about what it meant to be a woman. Why do you want to be one? You know, what is it that is attractive about it? And he had some strange ideas about what being a woman was, I felt. Um, one of his ideas was that it was life on easy mode. He so. saw chivalry. He saw, you know, um, his wife, his mom is kind of a submissive wife. Um, she's a, she's a traditionalist Christian now. And the husband takes care of business and, you know, wife has a really small domain that she has to take care of and her chores are really mundane and she can work or not. Um, and, you know, she doesn't have kids. It's basically sitting around eating bonbons and, you know, making sure dinner is ready. And, you know, microwaves are great. So making dinner is not that hard. And female life is just awesome. So uh, that's when I was like, okay, buddy, we need to talk about, like, you need to open your eyes and look around. Like, <laughs> who gets the family together and... To do, to do things like, you know, how do holidays and birthdays happen? <laughs> what, um, you know, who gets you to your appointments? Who makes your appointments? That sort of thing. Like, mm -hmm. let, let's have a, a more eyes open <laughs> approach about what it means to be a woman. Um, and also what it means to be a man. Because, you know, I think that a lot of the stereotypes that he had internalized were also pretty harmful. Like, you know, the machismo and denigration of women, you know, that he thought he was expected to participate in. Or, um, hmm. you know, thinking that he was going to have to be the breadwinner or whatever, you know, that that was his destiny. And just trying to show him, you know, we can step outside of these roles. This is not, this is not uh, anything fixed in society. And you may perceive that it is easier in life for people who do fit within those roles very neatly. But you will also find that people who give us amazing contributions to the world step outside of those roles. That year was, that sophomore year was fun. Um, a lot more of his personality continued to come out. Um, turns out he's a really funny person, really, um, you know, kind of like outgoing, you know, happy, whatever. I don't know if it was an act. I didn't think it was. He seemed like that was genuinely him. Um, his diabetes got better. Um, it, the A1C went down to between six and seven. 
Um, and I noticed that his energy, his alertness, just his ability to participate in school got a whole lot better. Um, his Valproate levels, that's his medicine for his mood stabilizer. Um, those levels were consistently good now because um, I'd instituted programs for him where he could organize his medicines and have everything laid out and in one place and he could see like if it's still there I didn't take it <laughs> mm -hmm. so you know using med minders and pre-filled syringes and you know really strict note taking and um, you know teaching him organizational skills and he seemed to be doing really great sophomore year um, between sophomore and junior year I signed him, signed him up for a summer school class career exploration, so, uh, you know, couple credits, no risk. Like if you pass, you get extra credits. If you fail, nothing happens. It's just like a way to, it was a way to keep him in a routine essentially while I had to work and he had a summer vacation. Um, and there were surveys like personality surveys and interest surveys and whatnot in this. And from reviewing all of these surveys, I learned something really interesting. And his responses to questions like, if you came across a crowd of people beating someone up, what would you do? And it, it was multiple choice, like go tell someone, try to break up the fight, um, join in the fight, um, get between the assaulters and the victim, that sort of thing. He would join in. Most of his answers to these questions um, indicated that he did not have an internal locus of control, that he really gave that to the crowd, like he was a go-along person and was very much not into examining why they were doing what they were doing, but that it was easier just to fit in and not think about it hmm. for him. Okay. That was kind of a disturbing discovery for me. And it really made me work a lot harder to try and develop that internal sort of control. Like, you know, we need to develop what, what is your goal? What do you want to make of your life? You know, not necessarily, you know, what career you want or, you know, whatever, but we want to examine like, what, what does a happy life look like for you? And this is also important because going with the crowd at the time for him was supporting Donald Trump. Oh, he fell on that side. He did. In Portland. In Portland. That's risky. That was, well, you know, um, turns out a lot of the online forums that he was taking part in were very conservative. Hmm. Conservative furries. There was a significant brony Nazi overlap. Oh no. oh no! And I urge you to look into that. Oh, maybe I don't want to. I'm having visions of stampedes it, through the streets. It has it has been documented. Okay. In other places. Yeah. But there is a significant Nazi brony furry overlap. Okay. And there was also a really excellent um, opinion piece published in the New York Times. This was also about the time that Caitlyn Jenner came out. Call me Kate. Um, and when Caitlyn Jenner came out, there was an 
article in the New York Times, I think it was called What Makes a Woman? But it was by a female author. And she went through and she was like, you know, she, she laid out basically all of the gender critical arguments. Like, you know, even if I stop shaving, I'm still a woman. Even if I take a masculine career, I'm still a woman. All of these things. And I read it to the kid. And I read all of the like 700 responses, which were mostly on the same side. Explaining like all these women are talking about their women experience and how their body has influenced that and how, you know, it has limited their choices through life and how it has impacted, you know, uh, just how what direction they went. Like, you know, whether they ended up rich or poor was affected by the fact that they were a woman. Um, and that really got him to thinking a little bit more. The election happened and I was very sad and he was very sad. And so we kind of huddled in, but then we heard about the women's March and we both decided to go. So um, we went to the women's March in Portland together. And that was an interesting experience. He got to see a bunch of signage about, you know, really like, these bodily concerns are very serious to women. Um, and he, there were a lot of trans activists in the crowd as well with signage that was very negative toward women and toward, you know, centering women's bodily experience. And he observed that that was kind of stupid. <laughs> um, and then we together heard the saga of Rebecca Brewis, who had been an organizer of the Women's March here in Portland, who is a transgender ex-felon, who made off with about $15,000 from the organizing committee. And he was like, well, there's dishonesty on top of dishonesty. Hmm. And... So it wasn't long after that that we had his regular IEP meeting for the school year. Um, always happens in that sort of January, February area. And that's when he said to the assembled group of people, we had a full room with the school nurse, the school counselor, his special ed teacher, the direct, the school district special ed person, coordinator, um, his mom, me, his stepdad. And he announced that he was no longer transgender identified. He didn't want they, them pronouns anymore. He was fine. He, him, he's going to keep his name because he gotten so used to it. And so did everybody else. Um, but that was the end of it. Um, just like that, that was like that. And can you continue to be really successful in school that year? Continue to um, do better and better. But it seemed like every time he had a success, he would get scared of it. Like we would send him on a trip on public transportation that had, you know, 
a transfer and a walk to another bus stop and, you know, just a little bit more complex directions. And he did it and we celebrated it. And the next time he would get on the bus and forget that he was on the bus and just not ever get off. Or, you know, we would celebrate him independently doing a school project. And then the next similar school project he had to do, he would freeze and I don't know where to start and just have emotional meltdowns over how intimidated he was by the work. And it wouldn't help a, it wouldn't help to say, hey, you know, we did this last time. Here's how we did it. We broke it down step by step. You know, we didn't eat the elephant in one bite. We, you know, that didn't help. Um, and so the next summer, I again enrolled him in the enrichment class. Um, and this time it was fashion because he was interested in that. He still, you know, he's like, I want to develop my own personal style. I want to, you know, I want to know like how colors work together when in your clothes and stuff. Cool. So I signed him up for a fashion class. Um, and he had a lot of problems in there. He was self-isolating, but telling me, like the teacher would call me and tell me that he was going into another room to curl up in a corner and suck his thumb. He would tell me that the other kids didn't want him around. She would tell me that they would try to include him and he would start verbal altercations. He would tell me they're bullying me. Hmm. It got to a point where it's kind of stressful for him, but it was a short class. So I made him write it out. I was like, you know, we need, we need you to be in structure. And then this, the next school year started, his senior year of school started, and he had a suicide attempt. This time it was a serious, a serious attempt. Um, during, during the meltdowns, I guess, from being in um, that summer class and getting started in senior year of high school. One of the things that he said to me was, you know, I guess you just don't love me right. You know, in terms of, I don't know, maybe my not understanding how he could go from having so much success and doing so much so well and having, you know, looking forward to post senior year and, um, because we had, in his IEP, we had actually made a plan for him to be in an extended high school program. They call like a roadmap to success or runway to success or something like that. Where basically they have um, career support and they help you finish up any classes that you may not have done well in in high school. And um, they offer like internships and interpersonal classes and things like that for special ed kids up until they turn 21. Mm -hmm. So we were going to enroll him in that. So it wasn't like he was looking down the barrel of a gun at the end of high school. He had, you know, another good three years runway before we were going to say, Hey, you know, 
we're looking at adulthood here. And then even further after that, my offer was still good until he was 23. So he had a good five years, even six years at this point, because he hadn't turned 18 yet. Um, but he was just a couple months from turning 18. And he was starting to realize that. It was starting to bear down on him. Um, and he had meltdowns over that. And then he had a serious suicide attempt. Um, and by serious, I mean he got up overnight and injected way too much fast-acting insulin. And that would have surely done it if he hadn't gotten scared and chickened out. And I don't want to say chickened out. That's terrible. If he hadn't gotten scared and started downing sugar to deal with it. Hmm. And um, he did eventually wake me up early. He was like, I'm, my blood sugar is still going down. I attempted suicide. I need your help. Um, so at that point, I injected him with glucagon, which is a fast-acting reversal agent for insulin, and said, do you want me to drive you to the hospital, or do you need me to call an ambulance? Because... I do not countenance suicide attempts. That's not, we don't sit around and talk about it. There's no tea and sympathy. It's, you attempt suicide, we're going to the hospital. That's, you know, that's that. Um, because he had used it as manipulation in the past. He had said things like, you know, if you don't do this for me, I'm going to kill myself. And I'm like, well, Let's go to the hospital then. Oh, I don't mean it. I don't mean it. Hmm. Um, but this time he had. And I took him to the hospital. Um, and he had another inpatient stay in the psychiatric ward. Um, and while he had his inpatient stay at the psychiatric ward, um, I continued to go and visit him and... He continued to talk to me about how it just, he wanted to give up. He was just done with therapy. He's done with school. Um, therapy wasn't getting him anywhere. He was tired of it. Um, so he's going to drop out of both. And I let him know, I'm sorry, that's my boundary. You had to keep in your therapy and your medical treatment and you had to stay in school in order to keep living with me because I'm not your mom and that was that was why you were with me was so that we could get this intense care to make you successful in these things but if you're giving up then I'm sorry and and maybe you're right maybe I don't love you right hmm. maybe you need to go back to your biological mom you know who maybe knows you better who maybe I don't know it was around that time that book um, Far From the Tree came out and there were a whole bunch of people on the radio were talking about kids who didn't share a lot of their traits with their parents. Well, he was pretty far from the tree. I mean, he was under my tree. Um, so maybe he needed to go be back with people who were like him. I don't know. So he did. He moved back. Um, 
as far as I know, he's still desisted. Um, he called me. Well, see, after he moved back, I went and visited him for his 18th birthday. I had already bought his birthday present for him, so I wanted to drop it off. Um, got him a new pair of shoes. Uh, and then I called him up that next summer and we went and visited for an afternoon and he seemed okay. And then that fall he called me and asked if he could come and be, come and live with me for a couple of weeks. And I told him, unfortunately, that just doesn't work. You can't, you can't come back. I would love to see you for an afternoon. I would love to spend some time, you know, get some lunch or whatever. Love to catch up. I really miss you. But I'm sorry you can't come and live with me. And um, I haven't heard from him since. I am still in touch with his siblings. Youngest brother is doing well. He's in college remotely, um, driving a schoolie, or living in a schoolie going around picking up garbage at national parks. <laughs> hmm. He called me up actually on Mother's Day to thank me and to say that he wouldn't be as successful as he is now if I hadn't been there. And I was, I cried. I'm going to cry. <laughs> um, it was so incredible. I mean, I think about the number of times that I had to take that little boy aside and explain to him why his brother was so violent and mean to him and just explain to him that, you know, he doesn't want to be like this. And when he's like this, it means that he's sick and you need to come and tell us so that we can help you so that we can keep you safe and so that we can help him not yeah. do this to you. Yeah. And both of the boys had said to me when they were little, I think the youngest was maybe like, he was eight, that's right, because it was around that time that his brother was being born. Um, they told me that they knew that I would keep them safe, that I would not let them do anything to hurt themselves or other people. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's basically like how that went down. So Sandy, as far as I know, is still desisted. They they call him now by his male name. Okay. But he is still ill, and his father is still ill. And what? he does not he does not work. He hasn't graduated high school. He. I don't. He seems, from what they talk about, he seems like he's got sort of a burnout lifestyle right now. What do you mean by that? Um, getting up at 1 p.m., okay. not showering daily or even weekly, um, smoking a lot of weed. Um, Can't be good for his mind. Right. <laughs> I, that was one I specifically warned him about, too. Um, that his grandma thinks very strongly that's what triggered his dad's first psychotic break. Um, it's so known. So you invested so much of your heart and your soul and your life into this family. Almost like just a donation of charity. <laughs> yeah, kind of. 
what, why? Um, what, what, why did you keep on doing that? What was telling you to stand up for these, um, these kids and this family? You know, I, I have a really soft spot in my heart for kids who were abused, who are abused and neglected. I experienced physical abuse and situational neglect in my own life. And I didn't think any kid should have to have that in their life when they have the opportunity to have at least one caring adult. And, and why that should be me, I don't know, maybe convenience because I was there and, you know, because I was such a bleeding heart. <laughs> but um, the kid asked me to share. When he was desisting, he, he asked me to go out on the street corner with a sign the way that the anti-abortion people did in front of his school, the way that Billboard Chris is doing. And he wanted me to go out and tell the world that kids were being conned into being transgender. And that is why I'm doing this video. That, that is why I'm here. This is my billboard. And when he asked for that, I taught him the meaning of the word pillory, about the stocks. <laughs> and, and I told him that doing so publicly here in this metro area gave me great fear for my personal safety. If I were to do that in front of his school, if I were to do that somewhere else where it was important and attention getting that I fear that my safety would be in danger. So, um, I guess that's, I mean, other than that, I, I don't have a why. <laughs> I mean, I want my life to be a gift to the future and this seems to be yeah. one way I can give a gift. Well, thank you. Thank you for um, sharing such such weight <laughs> yeah yeah it is congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion if you enjoyed it do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff and do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well have a good night